Obviousness type double patenting is a judicially created doctrine designed to prevent a patent owner from applying for a second patent which isn't patentably distinct from the claims of a first patent. In many cases, obviousness type double patenting can occur accidentally, and it's important for patent holders to know how to avoid this complication. Finnegan attorneys Alyssa Lipton and Jeffrey Jacobstein join us now to discuss this issue. Jeffrey, what prompted the courts to create the doctrine of obviousness type double patenting? Obviousness type double patenting, or OTDP, was created in response to a perceived loophole in the law governing patent term. The goal was generally to prevent unjustified term extensions from the serial filing of patent applications claiming highly similar inventions. An unjustified extension is what the court was worried about, and there was more significant concern with that when term ran for 17 years from a patent's issue date. In fact, many inventors and patent attorneys believed that OTDP was really no longer needed once the U.S. switched to a term of 20 years from filing. The courts, however, quickly pointed out that some patent term loopholes remained. And also, the doctrine addressed another important policy consideration which was preventing harassment from multiple infringement suits by different assignees asserting essentially the same patented invention. So the doctrine continues to live on. OTDP reduces the concerns I mentioned previously by requiring a terminal disclaimer of any extending patent term. A key requirement for filing the terminal disclaimer was that the same entity must agree to own both patents throughout their enforceable life to avoid that issue with harassment. The doctrine has changed and expanded in a number of ways since it was first implemented. Initially, it was applied only to patents having the same inventor or same inventive entity. But in 1984, the courts began to apply the doctrine to any patent having a common assignee or even a single inventor in common dramatically expanded the number of patents subject to the prohibition. Applications of the doctrine have continued to expand from there, and over the years have grown into other areas, particularly in cases involving pharmaceutical or therapeutic inventions. For example, in 2001, the Federal Circuit explained that even a legitimate selection invention could trigger an OTDP violation in another application, where the selection invention issued prior to an earlier filed generic invention. A further expansion of the doctrine occurred again in Geneva Pharmaceuticals v. GlaxoSmithKline. Prior to that case, the courts didn't really look to the specification of a reference patent when evaluating OTDP. They generally just looked to the claims of the reference. OTDP was essentially seen as a claim-by-claim analysis and nothing more. Geneva changed that rule by allowing the courts to consider the specification in the reference patent if they could argue that what they were doing was determining the scope and meaning of the claims at issue rather than looking to the specification itself. As a result, the court found that claims to a method of treatment with a particular compound, for example, could be treated as obvious for OTDP purposes over the compound itself, even though the method of treatment information that the court was looking at could only be found in the specification of the reference patent. In both the earlier cases that I mentioned, the starting point for initiating double patenting was the issue date of the reference patent. One of the biggest changes came when the court questioned the reliance on issue date in Gilead v. Natco. Alyssa, what was the Federal Circuit's holding in Gilead, and why is it such a significant decision? In 2014 in Gilead, the Federal Circuit held that a patent that issues after but expires before another commonly owned patent can qualify as a double patenting reference. And as Jeff discussed, prior to Gilead, courts focused on the issue date of the patent 
and only invalidated the second issued patent. So Gilead was really a big shift because the Federal Circuit is now telling us what's important and key to focus on is the expiration dates of the two patents in order to determine which is the earlier expiring patent. The Federal Circuit in Gilead expressed the concern that the prior case law with its focus on issue date could lead to gamesmanship during prosecution if an applicant arranges for the application with the latest filing date to issue first. Shortly after Gilead, the Federal Circuit decided the AbbVie v. Kennedy case. And more notable than the holding in the AbbVie case is dicta in which the Federal Circuit addresses the Gilead rule in the context of patent term adjustment, or PTA. The Federal Circuit stated that the double patenting doctrine applies to patents claiming overlapping subject matter that were filed at the same time, but with different patent terms due to examination delays at the patent office. And the Federal Circuit expressly cites to Section 154B, the Patent Term Adjustment Statute. The AbbVie decision made clear the equitable doctrine of double patenting may in some cases trump the statutory grant of PTA or Patent Term Adjustment. How has the Federal Circuit's ruling in Gilead been applied by district courts? We've seen several instances where district courts have applied the Gilead holding in the context of Patent Term Adjustment or PTA. First, at the end of 2015, the Magna Electronics v. TRW case issued out of the Western District of Michigan. In that case, there were two patents which stemmed from the same priority application but had different terms due to PTA. The district court in that case cited to Gilead and invalidated the earlier issuing but later expiring patent. In other words, the patent that had longer term due to PTA. More recently, in August 2016, the District of Massachusetts issued a decision in the Janssen v. Celtrion case in which the court applied the Gilead Doctrine in order to invalidate a patent covering Remicade, which had a longer term due to PTA. Interestingly, in both the Magna Electronics case and the Janssen v. Celtrion case, the district courts invalidated the patents on motions for summary judgment. The parties in the Celtrion case recently informed the district court that they are in settlement talks, but barring settlement, the Celtrion case may be an opportunity for the Federal Circuit to apply the doctrine of double patenting in the context of PTA. And finally, Jeff, in view of this trend in the case law, what can patent owners and applicants do to avoid undesirable consequences to patent term? Well, there are various strategies that I would say should be considered, and the best one to choose will probably depend on the facts of your case. Here's kind of a list of top things that I like to think about. Number one, as Alyssa explained, OTDP can significantly impact PTA even within a single patent family if you've got continuations going and there are differences in term due to PTA. Those could potentially be subject to challenge. So one thing to do early on in prosecution is to plan out your restriction requirement. Evaluate your claims before the start of substantive examination. Make sure that they cover all the categories that you might want to ultimately pursue and get claims and issued patents. And add at least one claim to any missing category of subject matter that you notice during that assessment. Once you've got all those claims set up, consider reaching out to the examiner and suggesting groupings of the claims to help ensure a clean restriction requirement. Or if you suspect the examiner might not issue a restriction requirement, reaching out ahead of time might help encourage the examiner to do so. After getting a restriction requirement, don't traverse. In other words, don't argue against the restriction. 
and don't ask for a rejoinder in response to the restriction requirement or, again, later during examination. In fact, you should consider canceling the withdrawn claims to reduce the risk that the examiner will remember that they were there and decide to rejoin them when you get closer to allowance, which would then prevent you from having the opportunity to use those claims as the source of a divisional application. During prosecution, consider strictly adhering to the elected restriction group. Don't accidentally add a claim or two that also reads on another group, or even worse, reads on subject matter that was never covered by the original restriction requirement. Likewise, when you file a divisional application, make sure the claims are still consistent with the restriction groups in the parent case. And make sure you label that case as a divisional, as you won't get safe harbor protection if you forget to include that label. If you do decide to use a continuation instead of a divisional, evaluate the benefits of getting extra claims carefully against the risk to patent term. Likewise, if you file a species or improvement patent at a later date, be aware that it could also be a source of risk for the term in your earlier filed genus case. For example, if that earlier case accumulated PTA, that might extend it beyond the expiration date of a later species case and be a potential source for double patenting. Finally, one of the things that I think is important to consider is to take all possible precautions to lock down assignments and other ownership rights from your inventors in case they later move to new companies and file new applications that cause double patenting concerns. Our guests have been Alyssa Lipton and Jeffrey Jacobstein, attorneys at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.